Yeah, glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for coming. And uh, yeah, so there's a couple things. One, I need to talk to you real quick about something called Equip. Um, last year, um, we hired um, Matt Baldwin. It's actually not full-time, but uh, he works like he's full-time, so that's uh, it's a real benefit. Um, typical church ministry, I guess. But um, in any case, uh, Matt came on and he said uh, that he, he wanted to get five people into a, a group called Equip, um, which is a training course. It's a one-year intensive discipleship process that runs September through June. And uh, he ended up, ended up getting about 20 people to be a part of this, ended up having two cohorts of these folks. Um, we were kind of doubtful. We were like, okay, Matt, we'll, we'll see what this is like and, and see what happens. But uh, lo and behold, even through COVID, like they continued to meet on Zoom for a little bit and then finally were able to get back together again. But uh, these two cohorts ended up getting through this process and I, and I need to tell you that I, like, I saw people that I was like, man, uh, it, it's, it's almost like I was looking at them saying uh, they couldn't grow anymore. Like they're, 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 they've kind of topped out. They're, they're really great Christian people. They couldn't grow anymore. And I was amazed at what God did in their life. And I say that because uh, I had the, the, the end of the class barbecue at my house. And so that was kind of my first interaction with all of them. Um, after they had gone through a quip. And so I was able to sit and just hear what God was doing in their lives and see the tears of realization and um, how God is transforming them. And so we, uh, over the summer, uh, decided that this is gonna be something that we're going to open up to the rest of the church. And so we're opening up something called a quip. As I said, it's a one-year intensive discipleship process. It runs September through June. Um, this is like deeper teaching, kind of like the disciples learned from Jesus as their rabbi to, to become closer with Jesus. Um, it's, Matt isn't Jesus. He's the one that's teaching it. Uh, Matt Baldwin, uh, one of the other pastors on staff here and elder um, as well. Um, but this is, this is kind of that type of setting. And so if you feel like you've kind of made it, um, like you're kind of uh, good with where you're at. You may want to go to this, this, uh, this class, this cohort, just so you can be humbled a little bit, uh, or maybe a lot. That would be a really great thing for most of us here. Um, these are small co- cohorts. It's, uh, it's a way to get involved and to be known uh, by other people. Um, there are other leaders that will be involved with this. Um, we're going to see how many people sign up. We're, we, I think we have a limited amount that we can take, but we'll see what, we, uh, what happens. Um, it meets weekly. It's going to cost you something, time, commitment, money, um, investment in books and training. Um, the total investment by the, by the time you get done uh, by, to the end of the year, there will be three to $400 that some people were able to get it done by buying used books for 125 Many of you know what I'm talking about. You can buy used books, and so um, that's, uh, that's easy to do. So there is, a, there is a cost to it. Everyone is welcome to apply. It is an application process. We will talk with you about that. There will be a website coming uh, with the application. You can watch for that. And the first cohort, as I said, is in September, uh, just uh, here next month. And so would love to see you be a part of that. This is also a place where, where we look to, to see uh, 
you know, who, who's up and coming and how can we uh, implement them in the life of the church and in our city and so forth. So it's a great place to get plugged in so that you can get to know other people and find out where would be the best place for, for you to serve here at the church. And it may be that there's some type of leadership uh, position that you would have, but we can't promise that. We at least can promise this, that you will know how to lead yourself and then your family, the areas where God is clearly uh, designed you to lead in. And so uh, I want to invite you to that. That'll be, you'll be able to apply here very shortly. And I, I believe there should be something on the website now so you can look for that. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 beginning in verse uh, 36. Uh, we're talking about the sinful woman forgiven. And so you can turn there. I've been talking over the last uh, few weeks just about... Um, uh, out, out, of this, out of this passage, and I think it really speaks to some things that I'm going through. Uh, hopefully it speaks to you and the things that you're going through. Um, but let me just read this, and, and, uh, and we'll get rolling here. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I don't know what you think when you read that story, but it feels like a story that feels distant from me. It feels like a story that doesn't resonate with who I am, sadly. I don't know how many of us in this room or watching on the live stream have had an experience like this with Jesus. 
And many of you grew up in Christian homes, just like I did. But I, I, just, I just have to wonder, like, how, how many of us are experiencing Jesus on that level? There are so many things that I have tried to do in my life to bring about transformation in people's lives. I started a church with a bunch of other people back in 2007. You're sitting in it. And in the midst of that church, one of the things that I said to myself, it was just a very short vision statement, which was, I want to build a church that young people will go to. It was just really simple. There was nothing theological about that. There was nothing, anything. I just looked at a generation of people and I just said, man, they are not going to church. They're leaving the church. There were all these uh, progressive people who were, uh, well, they were becoming progressive. They were, they were going from conservative theological, like true biblical choices, true biblical understanding, and they were going to theology always changes. It's always progressing. It's, it's all, all of this stuff. And it was a lie. And so I had this passion. And so I said, I want to build a church that young people will go to. And in large part, I, what, I, what I found is that we could do it. Like we, like we know how to get people to come to our church. And we know how to get people to, to, to enjoy what's going on here. And I, I, I can't, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but like churches fail pretty quickly. New churches, most, most church plants fail. So we feel pretty good about ourselves because the church didn't fail. And, and in large part, what I fear is that my church plan didn't fail because I'm just good at being attractional. But you know what I'm not good at? I'm not good at changing your heart. And I'm not good at changing my heart. I cannot force transformation. I cannot make you do anything for God that God isn't already doing in your life. And the reason I know this is because I can't make me. Because when I look at my own life and I look at my own sense of transformation, I just go, I, I don't know that I'm there either. So I can start a church and it can look like we got a lot going on. But the truth is, I mean, if we're just real honest, we can point to stories. We can point to some stories where things have happened and God has worked. And I, I don't wanna discount everything that God has done. God has done amazing things things, but he's bringing me to a new realization. It's kind of weird. God convicts just periodically. And after a while, you realize that God, has, he's just put up with, with your stuff for so long. And it's just like, God, you've just been so gracious. Like you've dealt with me in this area of sin for so long. You've dealt with me in this area of just kind of misunderstanding of who you are. And you still used me God has just been that good. So the reason I know that I can't transform you 
is because I can't transform me. It's that, it's that real. I don't know if there's a time that's, that needs transformation more than right now. I mean, if we were to open our eyes and just really acknowledge, like things are really bad right now. Things are really bad. I I, I hate to be a downer. I've been talking about how I've been weary lately. I really hate it when people are always, you know, down in the dirt and just like wallowing and, and all that stuff. But I've been wallowing. I've been, I've been wallowing in this and just going, this stinks. And, what, and, it's, not, and it's not just us. It's, it's our world. Our world. It's just in large part, just, just at this, it is so angry at each other. I mean, Obviously, you got the stuff in Portland that's going on constantly. The, the riots in Portland, just night after night after night, that going on. Got left versus right, Republican versus Democrat. You've got, um, you got, you know, I heard about another church has people emailing the pastor all the time. One side's really ticked off because uh, they're making them wear a mask. And the other side's ticked off because there's people in church that are, not, uh, that are not wearing masks. And both of them are angry at the pastor. And there's people who are leaving and they're saying, you know what, I'm out of here because I didn't like something that you did during COVID or whatever, as if this is something we've ever done before. Like, it's, that's insane. It's just insanity. There, there, there is... There are studies that have come out just about the local church and just like how many people have just stopped like attending church during COVID. Like how many people just don't go, don't watch service. I've had multiple people tell me, yeah, I just, I haven't really watched my church's live stream. I haven't really, I just, and they just basically stopped. Just, that was it. And like, I mean, I, I realize I'm a pastor and this is coming from me and so it benefits what I'm doing to see people come to church. But I, I, I'm not doing this for my health. I'm doing this because I believe that we should not stop being together on a regular basis. Like the word of God being preached on a regular basis is absolutely important. But there's people who just stop. And then... And, and then I think what it's showing us is this, is that we are seeing what's really beneath the surface. That I can't change you. And all of the worship services and really great musicians and worship leaders, which by the way, loved worship this morning. All of that does not make a hill of beans when it comes to transforming you and transforming me, that does not work. So let's look at the passage. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Stop right there. 
The Pharisees are religious jerks. They are the people that Jesus had reserved the harshest criticism for. He, Jesus, on a regular occasion, would call them out. John the Baptist called them out, called them a brood of vipers. I think Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs and, and so on. These are, these are people who have all the religious stuff on the outside, and yet their hearts are full of all kinds of junk. And so Jesus has been, and the story right before this tells us about how Jesus has healed all kinds of people. He just had this healing service or something, and he heals all of these people, raises somebody from the dead. I mean, just all kinds of healing going on. And then he turns and he tells John the Baptist's disciples, he says, go back and tell John the Baptist what you saw so that you can tell him that, yes, I am the one to come, basically. So Jesus has just done that, and Luke, the writer of this gospel, he's trying to write an orderly account. That's he's writing to a friend, and he's, and he, he's, he's saying, I want to write an orderly account. I, I guess he looked at all the other gospels, and he was like, dude, all of these guys, they got their stories mixed up. It's just like, oh, <laughs> I, I don't think he did that. That's heresy, but... Uh, but Either way, he wanted to write something that was orderly, and his orderly account was showing us something like, Jesus did this, and then immediately after that, it looks like what happened was the healing service ends, and a Pharisee walks up to him and says, hey, want to come over for dinner? And Jesus is like, all right, sounds good, which is kind of crazy that the Son of God says, okay, I'll, go, I'll come hang out at your house. And so he does, which is kind of cool. And it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, if you, during that day, imagine for a moment, I mean, we don't know exactly, but it, it would seem like there's a, a lot of houses. They're right on the street there. There's open air because it's a hot climate. And so the doors are open. And so Jesus has been traveling all over the place. So you hear all these stories about how Jesus is in this house and then people like rush in and no one can get in. So they cut a hole in the roof. And, and so the, people just, they just kind of walk into each other's houses. It's a little bit different uh, than it is today. So people just kind of walk in because they want to be near Jesus. They want to be near, they want to be by him. Here's this great rabbi who's teaching. And so this, this woman walks in. And if you notice here for just a second, that it says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. She was a sinner. Now, it, it's kind of weird that it points that out. But Luke wants us to know something, that she was a sinner, and everybody knew it. It was clear. She's a sinner to a degree that many people aren't. She is somebody who is probably a prostitute. In fact, most commentators, uh, you know, people like that, smart people who read and so forth, believe that Luke is saying that because he's saying she's a prostitute. She's at least a, a, a very immoral person. And people 
know this. So when she hears that he's having dinner with the Pharisee, she says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to grab a bottle of my ointment. My wife loves that word ointment. It's just kind of gross a little bit, but it's really not an ointment. It's, it's, it's like a, uh, it's a, a perfumed oil. And so she grabs this and she goes into the house. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She walks in and she is brought to a, an incredible sense of, of heaviness. She's brought to a sense of, of real emotional entanglement. Like she, she is just, just moved emotionally by the presence of Jesus. And so she's weeping and she's, she's wiping his, his feet. And I can only imagine that she walks in and, and thinks, you know, I'm just going to go, you know, anoint him with some of this perfumed oil that I have, but she just bursts into tears. Do, do you wonder? I wonder. How does that happen? Like, I have this friend, he always has the, he always, he, he sees accidents or like robberies or whatever, and I don't think he's lying to me, but like, he always calls me, dude, you're not going to believe this. You know how I always say, like, I saw that thing, and like, dude, you would not believe, and I'm just like, dude, are you serious? Like, that never happens to me. I never see that stuff. This, this, like, what happened here? Like, that never happens. Like, what happened here to this woman? Imagine for a moment, why is this woman so immoral? Why is she in the place where she's at? You know, we can be pretty judgmental of people who are in difficult situations, who have sinful habits, who just do egregious things. But then when you get into the psychology of their life and you realize this is what they endured as a child, you go, that makes perfect sense. Doesn't make it right, but it makes perfect sense. What, what, did, what did this woman gone through to bring her to a place where she is known and ostracized and kept out and rejected by her people? What is... What has gone on in her life that has caused her to come to this place where she is just uh, destitute? Destitute. Where she sells herself. Where she abuses herself. Where she, whatever it is. What, what happened to this girl? Don't you wonder? What happened in her life? What happened in her childhood? Did her dad abuse her? She have a family member that was wicked. Did she what? What destruction happened in her life to bring her to this place of destitution and rejection? And imagine for a moment that she's walking through the city, and she comes upon like this great crowd, and she sees a guy in the midst. Of this, of this crowd of people. And she is seeing him touch people that she has seen walk 
throughout the streets or limp throughout the streets or laying and begging or not able to see or dead and now is alive. And she is watching just miraculous transformation that's happening. And she sees Jesus. And one thing that she knows is she knows I'm broken. I may not walk with a limp, but I'm broken. Like I'm broken because I see in my life the re- what's, what's pushing me towards all of this stuff, and I can't stop it. I'm broken. And what happens? I have no idea. It doesn't say. This is all conjecture. It's extra biblical. But what had to happen in order for her to come in and sit behind him and begin to wash his feet with her tears? Did Jesus heal her? Did Jesus, Jesus touch her and heal her heart and heal the abuse and heal the pain? Has she ever not been touched sexually? Was Jesus the only man that's ever truly loved her? I don't know. But somehow, something happened. She had an encounter with Jesus that was transformational. She had an encounter with him that wrecked her. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This guy says, dude, if Jesus really was a prophet, if he really, you know, is clairvoyant and like knows what everyone's thinking and understands how to, how to get into people's minds, he would be able to know and understand what's happening here. That this woman is a sinner and she has no business touching this man. And in fact, his thought that for he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him. The word touching there has immoral connotations. It was immoral for her to touch him. It was further immoral for the woman to even let down her hair. There's rabbis who say during that time that a woman letting her hair down was the equivalent of burying herself. It was that bad. She comes into the room and she bears herself in a sense. This guy is struck by it and he says if he were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's immorally touching him. She is a sinner And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And there's there's little respect here. There's, There's not a lot of respect when he says, say it. 
Go ahead. Talk. Here's Jesus, a, a rabbi, and he just, he's kind of gruff with him. And Jesus tells this story. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? So Jesus begins to tell a story. In fact, let me finish that because I need to get to the end of this. Which of them will love him more? And Jesus answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Stop right there for a second. What's happening here is that Jesus begins to tell a story. And the story is, is really supposed to elucidate or show or reveal what's happening here. And it's obvious what Jesus is getting at. He's saying there's two debtors. There's two debtors. There's one who owes 50 and there's one who owes 500. Imagine for a moment that you're a business owner and you have a debt. And it, and it, it is a debt that you cannot pay back. You're essentially insolvent. You will never be able to get the money to repay this debt. That's essentially what Je the story that Jesus is telling. And the story that Jesus is telling is this, that sin is a debt. That sin is a debt that is owed to the money lender, God. Sin is a debt that is owed to the money lender, God. There's something else that Jesus says that's kind of interesting, and that is that one of those sinners, one of those debtors, owes way more than the other debtor. Like Jesus essentially says, like there really are big sinners, and then there's some people that haven't sinned that much. He's essentially kind of building up this Pharisee, and, he, and, he's, and he's kind of saying to him, see, she's a great sinner, and she's been forgiven. In fact, Jesus says in there, for her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Jesus even acknowledges the fact that she has so much sin in her life it is such an insurmountable debt. She does not think she will ever, she, she, there's no way that she could possibly think that she could ever take any of those experiences back. There's no way that she could ever dig herself out of this hole. She sees and she knows and she understands that she has such an amazing debt that she could never pay it back. See, there's a debt here that Jesus is revealing to us which is sin, and he is saying this, that sin is a debt that you do not have currency for. It is in a completely different currency. It is completely different. 
And I think about this for a moment. I think there's a lot of people in the church today, not all of us, but there's a lot of people in the church today I feel like I got some debts. I got, I got some stuff. But it's, it's not that bad. And sometimes we can think to ourselves, I know how I'll repay it. We forget that it's in a currency that is not that is, that is nothing that we have. There's nothing that we could sell to pay for this. There's nothing that we could do. But we try and we try and we try. And we try to do it with full church services. And we try to do it with service toward God. We try to do it with, in some way, we have a level that we believe that somehow I will pay God back for my debt, which is not many. I will pay God back with my service or whatever, whatever our line is. I'll pay God back with church attendance. I'll pay God back. I'll pay God back. I'll pay God back. But I got to tell you that I think that what's happening during COVID here is that COVID is exposing the reality of that thought process that says, I will repay God. COVID is revealing our lack of love for God. COVID is revealing how much we really hate our brother, how much we really hate the other side of the political spectrum, how much we really are disrespectful towards our leaders by sending ridiculous emails. And by the way, I haven't gotten one. I asked my staff, have we gotten any of these emails? So praise God for that. There's no punks here. Maybe you got the wrong email address. Uh, who knows? Uh, I'd love to fight with you, though. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, uh, is it, yeah, I mean, anyway, that's my problem. COVID's revealing something about you and me. It's revealing that we're not as committed to Jesus as we thought we were. COVID's revealing that we're, we're really not on, on track with who he is and what he's doing and how he's doing it. We think on some level that there's a debt that we can repay and we forget something. We forget that here is this, here is this woman who's been absolutely transformed Something has happened in her life that has, that has meant personal transformation for her. And she is as sinful as the day is long, as the year is long, as eternity is long. She is sinful, sinful, sinful. And this guy who's been in church 
since he was a fetus. Doesn't even see this woman. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, the Pharisee, do you see this woman? And the truth is, is that I don't think Simon saw this woman. What he saw was her sin. Jesus is saying to this guy who's supposed to have compassion, the Pharisee should know about the Lord and his compassion, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that that he's amazing towards his people. The Pharisee should know this. And Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? And Simon doesn't see her. He sees her sin. See, that's something about those of us who think that we don't have a debt to repay. Those of us who who don't really take that into account. We don't see people oftentimes. We see their sin. But Jesus sees her. He says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Why is that important? It's important because the customary thing to do, especially for a local dignitary like a rabbi, would have been to pull out all the stops and be incredibly gracious to him, wash his feet. Are you comfortable? Can I get you something to drink? What? Yeah, thanks so much for coming. Uh, so tell me about, you know, what? that's not the way this went. He walks in and it's gruff. He's like, yeah, you can sit there. It's, it's an adversarial relationship. There's no love for Jesus. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus sees her. He sees what's going on. You did not anoint my head with oil. This oil would have been olive oil. It would have been customary for you to put a little bit of oil. I mean, that, just, that feels awkward to me, and then I got greasy hair, and it's just, that's just weird. But olive oil is cheap. It wouldn't have cost anything. There's a contrast here. You did not anoint my head with cheap olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with expensive perfume. She's going above and beyond. She's not just a church attender. She's a lover of Jesus. She's not just someone who goes to community groups. She loves being with God's people. She's not somebody that serves to check a box. She wants to be Jesus to other people. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves, or forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus, I think just to tick off, Simon says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) I love that. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Now, here's how we can get this wrong. Let me end this sermon in the way that is, that is total heresy. So please, if you're watching, watch past this first ending. <laughs> Don't turn it off. The rest of you, you're a captive audience. So We all should be like the sinful woman, minus the immoral behavior. You should weep over your sin. You know what your problem is? You don't weep enough. You need to cry over your sin. See, you don't even care. You don't even care about your sin. You don't even care that Jesus went to the cross for you. You should, you should make sure that you feel incredibly bad about all the things that you have done and the ways that you have sinned against Jesus, and you should do that. And once you do that, then this church will finally be where it's supposed to be, and we'll start making a difference in our city. Have you heard that sermon before? I think I preached one or two just like that. Man. You know what's making me weary? Is that guilt sometimes is a good motivator, but sometimes it just kind of gives out. People just go, whatever. Guilt motivates people to do things, but it doesn't motivate them to do it from the heart. Incredible worship services and cool environments with these low light areas and cool polished concrete floors and things like that, it attracts people, but it doesn't change them. See, where we get this wrong is we say, if I love Jesus like this, then he will transform me. If I love Jesus, if I could just muster, if I could just get it together, if I could just make it happen, then everything would change and we would be in a different place if I could make this happen. But that's not the way that this went. See, the way that this went was that God had forgiven her. It had already happened. It was already there. Jesus had already seen. She experienced something in Jesus. She experienced the grace of Jesus. And her life was changed. What is she pouring out right now? She's pouring out this love for Jesus that is welling up inside because of his grace toward her. She's not giving love just saying, oh God, would you please take me as I am? She's not pouring out love saying, God, I really want to be a part of your thing. I really want to do this thing. Would you please let me in? Please let me in. No, God changed her and she is responding. She is proving that Jesus was this gracious to her. She is proving 
that. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. She had already put faith in Jesus. She was revealing the fact that she has faith in Jesus. You know what this is? It's not trying to muster up some type of spiritual experience. It's not trying to be whipped up into a frenzy by hyper-spirituality and multiple worship services and all of the stuff that we American Christians think that we need to experience God. It is a move of God in her life that only God brings. It is the presence of Jesus in these moments in her life that changes her. It is not her ability to pay it back. And I just got to tell you that I think we've got a long way to go. Because as I look around, I see an immense need for renewal, an immense need for, call it revival. But if you and I try to whip it into shape and make it happen, it's not going to happen. Revival comes, renewal comes as people are personally transformed. As each one of us is personally transformed. I don't know if you know much about the, about the revivals like the Great Awakening and, and uh, the Prayer Revival and, and things like that. But they're pretty amazing. In fact, I was reading something from Phil Riken on this. He says, the only thing we can say for certain is that we long to see the Spirit revive the church in our day and as he has, as he has in times past. Asa Nettleton, who was uh, around 1783 to 1844, was a preacher during the Second Great Awakening. And he left an eyewitness account of a meeting where revival took place. He wrote, did you ever witness 200 sinners with one accord in one place weeping? The scene is beyond description. I felt as though I was standing on the verge of the eternal world while the floor under my feet was shaken by the trembling of anxious souls in view of the judgment to come. Or think of the praying revival of the late 1850s. That revival began with a lunchtime prayer meeting in New York City. The first week, six people came. The next week, 20 turned out. Six months later, 10,000 businessmen were meeting for prayer. Similar meetings were held in more than 1,000 towns and cities east of the Mississippi River. Christians who lived through the great movement of God said it was as if the Spirit of God was hovering over the eastern seaboard, according to one account. Those on ships approaching the east coast at times felt a solemn, holy influence even hundreds of miles from land. 
Revival began on one ship before it reached the coast. People on board began to feel the presence of God and a sense of their own sinfulness. The Holy Spirit convicted them and they began to pray. As the ship neared the harbor, the captain signaled, send a minister. Another commercial ship arrived in port with the captain and every member of the crew converted in the last 150 miles of the journey. Ship after ship arrived in the ports of the East Coast with the same story. Passengers and crew were suddenly convicted of their sin and turned to Christ before they reached the American coast. And then he goes on to say, Just imagine. Imagine that for a minute. We live in the middle of a world that is increasingly against us, against Christians. And we are so afraid of saying the wrong thing, of doing the wrong thing. We live in a world that is increasingly becoming secular. We got an email from the school district a a little bit ago that said this, we're celebrating LGBT Pride Month. Our world has gone from saying, we're affirming that those people are people and they exist and we should care for them too. We are actively supporting this sexual lifestyle. That's interesting. That's different. That's crazy. And do you know what? We're joining in on some level. We're a part of it. We, we have become inoculated. We have become so dumbed down by engaging in whatever it is. We've been numbing ourselves with our cell phones and our apps and Netflix and whatever. And what if we're just asleep? What if we're all just asleep here and, and, and nothing's going to happen with us just saying, we're going to make it happen? Because I believe this. I long for the day that I'm weeping over my sin to a degree that I've never experienced before. I long to love Jesus on that level. And let me be the one to confess this. I don't have that right now. Do you? We need... Revival. We need conviction of sin that is so great that it brings us to our knees at the feet of Jesus. And we bless him with the expensive perfume of our lives that we pour out on his body, which is his church. And that people begin to see that there is something that's going on in us personally. It has to begin with personal renewal. And guys, I don't think we've prayed enough. I absolutely know 
we haven't prayed enough. Do you want to play church and act like you're not that sinful? I don't know. Can we just start praying? Can we just start praying that a prayer, like I prayed early on in my walk with with Jesus where I just said, God, I see what you want from me, but I don't really want my life to change. My life is comfortable. I make a really good salary. I go to church. I'm kind of a nice, nice person. I fast twice a week. I give this. We just Pharisees. I, I have to pray a prayer that says, God, make me want to even want that. Because I don't even know that I want that. Do you want that? Do you want to get down on your knees and, and cry at the feet of Jesus? I guess I don't, I don't know. Is, is, is it even worth doing if we're doing it half-hearted? Is it even worth it? Is that even Christianity? Isn't that lukewarmness? Is that what God wants? I don't think he does. Jesus has immense compassion for you and for me. And he's saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want rest for my soul. I want peace for my soul. And we are not at peace. Because we do not see the immensity of our sin. And we do not see what Jesus has done. And you will not force that to happen. We have to seek God. We must seek him and say, bring renewal to me like you did to this woman. Let's pray. In fact, let's invite the band forward and let's go to the the Lord's table here. Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment? When we go to the Lord's table, we bring confession. And we confess our need of Jesus. Everyday Christians are really good at acting like they don't need Jesus. Just like this Pharisee. Would you just Would you just pray this? Lord Jesus, would you let me see that I need you just like this sinful woman needs you? Some of us need repentance. All of us need repentance, but some of us need repentance in specific areas. Areas that we just hide. I want you to confess that to Jesus right now. What are you hiding? Where's your spiritual deadness? 
or is your lack of love for your neighbor? Where's the cutting, where was the cutting remark that you made this week? Either in person or on Facebook or wherever. And would you just make this your heart? Lord Jesus, change me. God, this church isn't going to change me. This worship isn't going to change me. My efforts aren't going to change me. But God, I'm, I'm hoping in you. I'm trusting in you. Would you change me? Would you make me new? Would you change me from the inside out? I cannot do it on my own. Would you make that your prayer? God, change me. It says that when Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to them, he said this, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. I gave it up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. Let's partake of the blood. Lord Jesus, would you supernaturally change us? God, would we, would we start praying for your renewal in our hearts? Lord God, would you renew our hearts? Or would we just start asking? Would we just start praying? 